Hello and welcome to GC Stories, the podcast where we speak to security services professionals with an extraordinary tale to tell. My name is John Watkins, the editor of Global Custodian, and in this series we've got custody, prime brokerage, all sorts of banking executives who have stories to tell. From former undercover police officers to ex-professional athletes, these truly are fascinating stories, and those who are telling them also have some amazing wisdom to impart. Particularly in times like this, I think it never hurts to listen to something inspirational and uplifting. I hope as many people listen to this while running, cooking, or in their downtime as they do during their working day. Now, before we get started, I'd just like to thank our partners in this project, SmartStream, the provider of transaction processing solutions and services to the financial community. They have been incredibly supportive of this series, just as they have with their own clients through this difficult period with the global pandemic. You know, their own story is one of stepping up when they needed to, reacting fast, being reliable, making sure their customers were prioritized during this period. So a big well done to SmartStream for informing and supporting the industry during this time, and of course, for their support of this series too. Today's episode is with the EMEA Head of Network Management for Barclays, Daniel Hickey, who's talking to us about his time as an officer in the British Army. This is a captivating discussion from start to finish. Dan talks about his two tours of Afghanistan, the one of Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis. He goes through his transition from the army to the world of security services and his lasting memories from the military. And Dan was a fantastic guy to talk to. In fact, I was listening so intensely at times, I actually forgot what my next question was. So I know you're going to enjoy this, uh, not just for the stories, but also for Dan's perspective on a range of issues such as diversity, equality, and mental health, some really important stuff. And now to the episode. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Daniel Hickey. Dan Hickey, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, John. I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. No worries. And have you managed to get yourself into a soundproof room away from any intrusions? I mean, of course, we're totally accepting on the podcast of working from home incidents like people bursting in. So it's fine if it happens. (laughs) That's, That's good to hear. I have tried to warn my children. But there's no guarantees at all that they won't come to join us. That's uh, all right. We, we'll get free passes during this period. Well, uh, well look, thanks so much for being on the, the show today. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation. And, uh, you know, I've looked into your background and, and, and it's fascinating. I, we tend to go chronologically on these podcasts. So we kind of ask how you get into it and, yeah, talk us through the journey. But one thing I really wanted to start with, and it's, it's flipping the script a bit, but, yeah, some of the guests on this series have been a bit like you in the sense that, what they did before moving into security services was so, you know, firstly interesting, but also you know, so captivating, and people just want to talk about it all the time, like I'm doing. <laughs> so even though you've you've left that behind, um, yeah, what's it like to come from the military into a new profession? Obviously, something you're really proud of, but is there that part of you that wants to start fresh when you start something new? Absolutely, John. I think you've you, you've really really sort of highlighted it quite well there. So fantastically proud of my career in the armed forces and the various bits uh, I've done in my service, including Afghanistan and Sierra Leone. But, you know, I did take a decision to leave the armed forces and to leave public service. And I wanted to try something commercial and work for a corporate organisation and the challenges that I faced there. And I wanted to have an intrinsic value to that organisation and the team that I worked in. So, I absolutely will always acknowledge my past and it's very much part of me uh, being in the army is very much part of me and it has helped to form my character but I do now want to move on and sort of be recognized within the industries for the skills that I bring to the industry and I want to involve and develop my character uh, to reflect that environment but without losing the good parts uh, perhaps that I bought from the military. 
yeah, a lot of lot of transferable skills. But I guess uh, you know, like a, a lot of people have had in this series. Uh, you know, we've had former professional athletes and former police officers, and it, yeah, sometimes when you meet someone that, that knows about it, it might be the first thing they ask you um, for, for stories occasionally as well. I imagine. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Absolutely. It's quite funny. Uh, when I first started at Barclays, um, you know, I had a great team around me of, of support, but also um, I remember my boss at the time asked me to write a short bio, uh, say that she could introduce me to the team. And I just put a few bullet points about what I'd done at my time in, in the army. And I said, I was a fire support team commander in Afghanistan and responsible for calling in close air support, attack helicopters, artillery and mortars, in a small team of five people. And she kind of sent that bio out to everyone and said, oh, I really hope Dan doesn't need any of those skills uh, here, uh, which was slightly unfortunate. And perhaps I maybe should have at that time thought more about the transferable skills. But absolutely, you know, as an army officer, my training at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and then my time on operations and uh, my ability uh, to break down problems and, and fundamentally the leadership element. So to get the best out of people, I think has really put me in good stead for the securities industry um, and, and, and working in an ever-changing environment where you're trying to main, uh, maintain a competitive edge and be client-focused. And so I really felt uh, that my military career had helped me to keep a cool head and uh, to lead uh, people to be the best uh, they can be uh, with, within this industry as much as it did within the military. Dan, let me ask you uh, then after that, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd love to just hear you know, how you got into the military. Was it something you'd, you'd always had an eye on doing? Um, and then kind of ask what, what the motive behind it was and what drove you to do it as well. I guess people come in from all sorts of backgrounds to the military, but in the officer route, it tended to be more from um, public schools and people um, of a um, uh, a military family. And I was neither of those. So I went to a state school in Fulham and um, a particularly good school, and it had its own cadet force. And I got an interest uh, in the army through through that, that cadet force. And my school was very good for sort of pushing public service and that one should try to do uh, better for that country. That sort of old adage of, you know, uh, consider not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I felt that um, I really connected uh, with that statement and always wanted to make a difference you know I believe you sort of only live once and it's what you do on your time with your time on the surf that really counts I did struggle with it a bit my family were always very supportive of me but not being from a military background were incredibly worried about me going into uh, this environment that was so unfamiliar for them and they couldn't really understand why anyone would want to do it but I had an intrinsic desire to help people and potentially, in some small way, make an improvement to the world. There are lots of ways you can do that in lots of professions. But there was something about the army, the ability to travel abroad, to try and uh, bring stability to regions uh, that had conflicts, and to represent one's country on the in the global arena, to try and project a, a, a better world out there and help people in dire and, and desperate situations uh, in countries where security isn't available in the same way that we take it for granted, perhaps in the UK, you know, it, the UK is a secure country. It has great uh, 
sort of rules around it and law and order and stability as a society and it has reasonable um, a reasonably mature economy and there's lots of opportunity that we have that when you're in the army you can see isn't out there in the rest of the world and I guess that drive to make a difference really spurred me on in the end to um, perhaps go against um, my family's background and, and and go into the armed forces. Yeah, absolutely. And are there times where you have to really remind yourself, because you say you, you did it to want to make a difference, but there must be times where you have to do things that, you know, in the long term, yeah, do, but in the short term, you know, maybe it's, it's sometimes hard to understand how that, that does help uh, someone. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think sometimes um, when you're on operational tours, uh, there can be negative reporting about what's going on there it can be very complex sort of geopolitical pressures within that region and sometimes uh, even doing the right thing can be the the wrong thing in in a different context i think fundamentally the british army is underpinned by some core values that really help you as an officer and, and your soldiers to make judgments around what they're doing and ensure they're always doing the right thing and whatever the bigger picture is, I think sometimes you have to let the generals and politicians worry about that space. And what you've got to ensure is that you're doing the very best job you can do within your area and that your soldiers are doing the absolute best job they can and that they're getting the leadership and mentoring um, and focus that they absolutely deserve. And in turn, um, say, for example, if you're in Afghanistan, uh, if you're working to train the Afghan National Army so that they can take care of their own army and, and sort of policing or the Afghan National Police Force so that they can provide that security and stability to their own population, then you need to focus on putting all the effort you can into that and sometimes maybe block out the, the wider picture of, of maybe what's being reported at home or or some of the other uh, factors that are, at, that are at play because you've got to do the very best job you can to make a difference in the role you've been given and it really is a, a role and a position where you, where you, you do make such a difference um yeah what was it like in your you know the first years of, of going into the army um i'm assuming from the journey you described it was it was quite soon uh, quite quite early on in your life then yes so i i, I went into the army at 24 uh, which is you know normal for an officer would normally join around 21 um, soldiers uh, normally join around 16 or 17. And I guess um, it comes with a challenge. So you're prepared fantastically well uh, uh, with your year at Sandhurst to be uh, an officer and a leader, a leader of soldiers. And the motto at Sandhurst is serve to lead, which I think is hugely powerful because actually you put your focus on the soldiers. You are there to serve your country by leading them to success. And I guess uh, the challenges that you face as a new subaltern is you go in and you're going to have a troop uh, sergeant who has probably been in the army for at least 16 years at the point that you're, you're interacting with them. And so you've got that uh, dynamic where you, you're brand new. You've just done a year of army training. And yet that person is looking to you for leadership, but at the same time has got 16 years worth of experience. But what you remember is that troop sergeant doesn't want you to fail and you don't want the troop to fail and you absolutely want to um, get that experience from that troop sergeant. 
And I think that's something I've really been able to think about is my initial experiences in the army with someone that's done 16 years of experience, but actually you're now their leader, you're in charge of them and the troop, is that how you uh, interact with that person, how you bring the best out of them, how you learn from their experience, but you put your own spin on it, and how you bring the, the troop, you and your sergeant all forward in, in both a career progression, uh, in, in their personal lives, and also make sure that you ultimately perform incredibly well on operations, which is the utmost important thing. And I think when I related that back to banking is when I went into uh, my team at Barclays, hugely operationally experienced, which is great. And I was able to draw the information and value from them. And I really recognized that as a skill set. I really recognized uh, the, the knowledge base that they had. But I was also able to potentially bring some new ideas to it. And I was able to uh, get the, these people with that operational experience to buy in. And I was able to potentially bring a freshness and a, a new dynamic to the team because in in the army you move postings every three years so we're constantly turning over uh, the leadership team and i think that's healthy for an organization because it it really uh starts to challenge uh i think that you're used to and it ensures that you um that you're always uh continuing on that journey of continuous improvement which is something that's so key to barclays and something that i've taken from the military and have been able to to directly see the benefit. And that came really from my first experiences of day one at 24, meeting uh, my troop sergeant, uh, uh, Sergeant Goodman, and just realizing that he had a hell of a lot more experience than me and how were we going to work together. Is there always kind of respect for the rank already? And then obviously you have to continue to earn it going forward. But in that first meeting, is there is there usually respect for the rank despite experience? Uh, there, there is respect in a sense that... Uh, you know, they will respect that the Queen has awarded you a, a Queen's commission in, in her army and that she would, um, you know, expect, uh, you know, the, the, the necessary etiquette to be followed. But respect is 100% earned. So just because someone calls you sir or they salute you and you salute them as you go past, which is kind of the army equivalent of saying hello in a way, doesn't mean they respect you. Respect is very much earned. You don't really earn the respect until at least you've done some good uh, time on exercise in the field with them and proven your abilities, uh, your, both your technical abilities, uh, your tactical awareness, uh, your compassion in, in your leadership. Map reading is also a critical one. You've definitely got to be a good map reader <laughs> to get respect. No, no troops like being led, uh, led around to the wrong places uh, in, in, in the middle of the night. But I was very fortunate because I went to Kenya um, uh, within uh, uh, six weeks of commissioning. You know, had to, had just over two months in Kenya training for Afghanistan, and um, as a result of that, my relationship with my troop was really cemented because we'd had a really good laugh and uh, uh, completed an exceptional um, live firing exercise in Kenya, ready to 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 go to Afghanistan. And I think I was very lucky because within my first year in the army, I went to Afghanistan and that cemented the relationship with my, with my troop because they trusted uh, me with their lives and I trusted them with mine. And I, I, I think that's what's quite amazing about the army is that they will put you in that situation after just a year's worth of training. Um, and so therefore, 
um, that's helped me um, because in banks, some pretty serious problems can happen at points, but I'm always able to relate it back and, and try and stay calm and, and cool under pressure because of the situations that I found myself in on operations, sort of life and death situations, and fa- fairly early on in my career, I always sort of think back to that and think, well, you just need to kind of approach it in the same way because it can be incredibly serious when things go wrong in the bank. But there are always things you do can do to try and mitigate those risks, uh, bring it back under your control and make sure you communicate well with your clients. Um, and so that, that, I think, has been a key skill that I've brought across from the Army. Yeah, I can imagine um, that is, and yeah, uh, some of the things I'm sure you've seen in the, in your uh, you know, your military experience mean that yeah, uh, nothing's uh, too much the end of the world in in a, in a bank, and you can always get through it, I guess, um, especially if you stay calm and and yeah, collective as you say. You mentioned Afghanistan. Um, am I right in saying that you had two tours of Afghanistan? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, if you can kind of. Um, in, Compass both those those tours in, in your answer. How do you look back on on that time in Afghanistan and, and evaluate your time out there and the experience? A fantastic experience. See, on my first tour, I led a troop of thirty five um, soldiers, and we were doing a combination of um, close fire support for a um, um, from, from a gun line in Nedi Siraj, but also um, we were mentoring the Afghan National Army. So we were training their artillery and um, most of the soldiers that we had um, on this artillery position with the Afghan National Army were from a farming background. Um, Maths certainly wasn't the subject uh, that they were taught. And although I've always described artillery fire as more of an art than a science, it definitely really is a science. And um, there is a lot of thinking that goes into uh, trajectory and how far a around can fire and wind direction and things like that. So we we had to work really hard to bring uh, the Afghan soldiers up to a base standard in, in maths in order for them to be able to coordinate and fire their own artillery. Because if you imagine when I, I was in Afghanistan, we had air superiority. So we had um, attack helicopters and fast air, um, with, you know, which meant that we were able, if we got in trouble, we could really call in some firepower to get us out of that trouble. Now, uh, the Afghan National Army, we were preparing them from the word go for us to leave Afghanistan. And we wanted them to be able to have the skill set and the stability to maintain the region. So artillery uh, firepower is an essential part of that, because if the Afghan National Army got into trouble, you want them to be able to call in something that could get them out of that trouble. And training them on artillery is absolutely fascinating Culturally, it was just uh, an exceptional experience, and we we shared food with them, meals. I mean, um, goat head curry is a, a new one on me, but you know, I tried it, and it was quite tasty. And you just didn't think about it too much. But we built a really, really close bond uh, 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 with with these guys, and they were really trying to do the right thing by their country, and they really wanted a better life for their children. And so we could really buy into that. And the one thing I really took was the commanders really cared about the soldiers there. And I just thought that was an amazing experience. Uh, on my second tour, is a bit different because um, I was part of a uh, sort of brigade um, ops company. So I guess uh, we were there to hold uh, some, some ground and um, in the upper Gresh Valley. 
And so that was more of a traditional sort of fighting footing, uh, but also mentoring an, an, an Afghan National Police Station. Um, and on that particular tour, we were constantly trying to target um, uh, mortar teams. So the bases we were in were getting mortared quite regularly because uh, they sort of knew at some point we were going to be leaving Afghanistan. So they were trying to step up their efforts to lower our morale and also to undermine our presence with the Afghan National Police Force. But I felt, um, I felt again, another really rewarding uh, tour because we were able to bring stability, uh, more stability to that area. We were able to protect key infrastructure points um, with the, um, uh, within uh, the Upper Grass Valley region. But we were also worked with uh, a special sort of police unit called the ANCOP, who were there to sort of secure the highways. And again, those guys really bought into what they were doing and understand, understood that the security of infrastructure was integral for Afghanistan. Um, to grow um, and again that that compassion that I'd seen so so much in my first tour of the Afghan National Army was absolutely there you know whenever their soldiers got injured or worse you could really see that the commander was quite strange he really cared for them and 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 their families yeah it sounds like that really fit in with your kind of mo of, of helping people um, and, and that's why you, you know you joined up so um, and, and when you came back or maybe even while you were there, did you find there was a difference in, in you know, your point of view and how you were looking at it than the media portrayal or, or the view of some, you know, your, your average person on the street, let's say? On my first tour, there were a hell of a lot of casualties coming back to the UK. And that, that can be very de- demoralizing to focus on those aspects. And I guess there's a lot of questions around legitimacy of of the conflicts which i'm not particularly going to um comment on but um from my experience in afghanistan is the areas that we were in and the good that we were doing the people there wanted us there and wanted us to provide that stability clearly there were groups and pockets uh, a number of which were foreign fighters that didn't want us there and were uh, potentially trying to disrupt our efforts but what i saw um, personally, that perhaps wasn't portrayed so well at home, was we were there and working with the Afghan people to help them get the stability so that they could make Afghanistan a better place. And I think perhaps uh, what was quite hard to maybe portray in the media is that the Afghans were in the lead and we were very much there to support them and we wanted them to be at the forefront of it. It was their country. This was not, you know, in any way, there wasn't any other drivers um, around that. And so what I took away most from my soldiers is that when we got into difficult or scrappy situations, my soldiers would far rather put themselves at risk than risk injuring or hurting Afghan people that might have been innocent uh, bystanders uh, within that situation. And so... I felt there was a real selfless commitment um, from the soldiers that they just were always uh, put themselves in danger rather than in any way endanger the domestic population. And that was really important because if you did accidentally in the heat of a moment, something had gone wrong, that could have been 10 more uh, fighters for the insurgency. And we didn't want that to happen, but we also didn't want to undermine the good relationship we'd built up with the local population. 
And I, I thought that was particularly selfless. And I don't think I've ever seen a sort of courage like that um, ever since I've left Afghanistan, that people would put themselves in harm's way uh, for the benefit of others. Um, yes, I mean, yeah, you use the word selfless. That's, that's uh, the, the best way to describe it, I think, isn't it? That's uh, a real moving point there. Um, Dan, could you um, also tell me about uh, the tour of Sierra Leone? So Sierra Leone uh, was probably one of my highest uh, moments in the army. So terribly desperate situation. Uh, 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 British army goes into Sierra Leone because West Africa is being devastated by a deadly disease uh, called Ebola. And um, Sierra Leone is in a very unfortunate position because it has Ebola. So there's no imports coming into the country. Um, because ships, quite rightly, don't want to stop there. Um, the economy is collapsing. The housing situation where a lot of people are living in real poverty means that you can't kind of carry out the kind of measures that we have in the UK around COVID, such as social distancing, or there's no furlough scheme or anything like that. People are in real poverty already, and, and, and then the situation is potentially getting worse. You know, the government's reaching reaching out for help and, 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 and effectively the best people to deliver help in that kind of scenario is the charity sector or the non, non-government organisations because they can plug in in a way that a country uh, is happy with and is incredibly effective. But the benefit, I guess, of uh, Sierra Leone is the British Army and the UK has stood by Sierra Leone ever since the Civil War. And, uh, you know, Sierra Leone is an active member of, of the Commonwealth and it is the most wonderful country with the most lovely people. Uh, so the people of Sierra Leone were willing to welcome the British military back because of their trusted past with them and the work that had been done in the civil war and to help stabilise uh, their country and provide support to their military um, in order uh, to, to keep that stability going. And I guess it was in this context that we were invited back to Sierra Leone initially to set up a field hospital and also uh, the Royal Navy and the Royal Fleet Auxiliary had a hospital ship uh, docked off the side of Sierra Leone. And that was there to support the charity sector and the non-government organisations. It was to provide an ability that should someone within that area that was really putting themselves in the front line in the real danger, treating um, people with uh, Ebola, um, it would allow them, if they were to get ill, uh, to hopefully get a route back uh, to the UK or get sort of world-class treatment from the fantastic sort of army nurses and doctors to give them the confidence uh, to put themselves on the front line in that situation against such a deadly disease. In addition, uh, the British Army was able to work with the Sierra Leonean Army to provide structure. So again, if someone in your household got a bowler, it was necessary to quarantine yourself and your family. And if that was to happen, you needed food to be delivered, etc., etc. And the, the Sierra Leonean Army was able to coordinate that effort. In addition, they were able to set up uh, roadblocks with temperature checks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and um, deliver messaging to get the population to change that mindset 
to try and defeat this terrible illness and come through the other side, which fortunately they they did. But I feel that the uh, mutual investment of both the uh, UK into Sierra Leone and vice versa, and particularly within um, the military sphere, have really helped that effort in, in combating Ebola. And it really showed that if you stick with and build up deep trust in a country and, and with their military, you can continue to support them in a constructive way uh, to, to grow and develop and particularly help them out in such a desperate situation as the Ebola crisis was. So two very different uh, experiences, I guess, with the, uh, the the Afghanistan tour and Sierra Leone, but um, yeah, both obviously uh, have a place in your uh, memory still. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think um, it's worth noting that um, on the Sierra Leone tour, I was working in brigade headquarters. Uh, it felt very uh, weird for me. I was with headquarters 11 Infantry Brigade at the time uh, that, you know, they'd selected us to head up this medical effort in a way. But actually, we provided the structure around which um, the clinicians could really operate. So we ensured that they were in the um, right place. Um, had had the right levels of support, food, supplies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but also, we you know used to engage with the president quite regularly um, and just tap in uh, 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 to the foreign office and all the various areas and just see how the military could better support. It was great because the people really wanted you there and you, you were helping them with a, a very deadly disease, so it felt incredibly rewarding. But also it felt very strategic for me because I, I think earlier I sort of referenced about, um, you know, sometimes you just need to do a really good job and do the right things by your soldiers, the local population. But actually now I was working directly for a brigadier and, you know, he used to attend COBRA meetings with David Cameron and you were actually sort of inputting towards the policy, the UK policy towards uh, Sierra Leone and um, how we were going to support at a more strategic level uh, beyond the bowler and, and and the kind of things that were needed from the UK government, and that was as a uh, as a captain. Uh, okay, uh, that was what a great exposure that was, and how many people can say okay, not quite on camera, but just off camera, they were <laughs> helping to support these live Cobra meetings that were going on and writing briefs for the uh, Foreign Office or or, or for UK government. Uh, a really exceptional experience. What's nice is you, you said at the start that the, joining the army came from your desire to help people. And it seems like you got the opportunity to do that throughout your career in the army. So you must feel quite lucky to have been able to achieve that that goal. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and I guess I sort of went on to this. I feel like you can help uh, people in lots of professions. And even if you're not in a, a sort of public service profession, just by the way that you can conduct your life as a private citizen, you can just help people economy and so many people do such great things that I, I should you know the focus and the thanks must absolutely go to the charity sector in, in Sierra Leone and, and Diffid and it saved the children led absolutely led the main effort there but I did leave that tour uh, with a certain amount of reward and sort of thinking actually I did really help some people in a very disparate uh, desperate situation in 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 providing that uh, structure and, and stability um for me the army was the way that i wanted uh, to help people i always thought security is a prerequisite for any form of uh, peace um, development and growth and that's where i was just 
naturally attracted to, but I think all of us can do something in any way of life um, to to benefit the world we live in. And there's definitely lots of people uh, within the army that did far more than me and, um, and, and made enormous sacrifices um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, to, to, um, in order to, to make those countries and help them become better and, and safer places for their population. And so in many ways, my service um, was challenging, but in no way have I faced some of the challenges that people are living, uh, living with today. And unfortunately, some people that aren't here at all because of the sacrifices they've made. And I think I always um, feel very humbled to have been part of an organization where people will literally lay down their lives uh, for a cause they believe in. The, the disease in Sierra Leone was Ebola, obviously different from coronavirus, but it's, you know, it's an incredibly relevant topic at the moment, um, given the nature of, of both the diseases. Does it make you look differently at how the world is responding now, uh, reacting to, to this pandemic, having gone through that experience in Sierra Leone and being on the ground there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it makes you incredibly grateful for living in a democracy with a very developed economy um, because you, you realise the measures that um, the UK has been able to put in place that potentially, and, and most of Europe, just weren't a viable solution in Sierra Leone. I think it's made people look internally at, at what's more important. Most of us have been working from home I guess, for our own safety and the safety of the wider population. And you try to think about uh, what is more meaningful for you. So actually, COVID hasn't, um, it has made me reflect on my uh, time in Sierra Leone and and think about the desperate situation that was there. But they are are very different um, because of the economies and the state, state of the countries. And actually, COVID's made me reflect far more internally about what I perceived to be important in life and potentially spending more time with my family um, and also being just being kinder to people and trying to understand um, different um, perspectives and risks and, and trying to be more sympathetic to the situations um, people face as a result of this because absolutely in Sierra, Le- Sierra Leone it was a devastating disease that was having real implications or impacts for their economy, which in this country has also happened. And for um, self-employed people, those with small businesses or in, in sectors massively impacted retail and, um, and travel, I think about those people a lot dealing with such a difficult um, situation, balancing the medical and the economic implications. But I do believe we live in a kind society and I've been incredibly impressed by some of the efforts that have been made by individual companies to change their focus to making PPE or if they were restaurants or takeaways and they were feeding the homeless and I just feel very lucky to live in a society that would even consider that compared to Sierra Leone where those kind of solutions just were not on the table and they had to reach out to help so that is fantastic to see however you feel the government's responded, that the population as a whole and the NHS and the police and the workers and even uh, you know, the people that work in supermarkets ensuring that we're all fed and the supply chain and even the, the dustbin men and women who have ensured that your rubbish is still collected, those 
absolute uh, conscious efforts where they put themselves at risk to ensure that we're all safe is very, very humbling indeed. Yeah, something maybe we hope that can continue afterwards. Yeah, it gives us everyone a new perspective, both from corporations to individuals to you know, pull together through uh, through tough times. And uh, not not that it's like war, but I'm sure that's uh, you know it's similar to to those kind of difficult times where actually you you're kind of battling something as a country and uh, stronger as a unit that you are uh, individually. So, like you said, let's uh, hopefully that's something that carries on post this and. I think that a lot of work has been done, hasn't it? So, Dan, thanks, thanks very much for that. And uh, you know, it's incredible to hear about both tours. And if we have to, kind of, I know there's never a way of just summarising. You know, how was your time in the army? <laughs> if I had to ask, what was, you know, what was the the lasting memory? You know, something that when someone mentions it to you, it's it's kind of the, one of the things you you draw on. I think for me, it would be the loyalty and the camaraderie. I've got a closeness to my soldiers fellow officers and those, um, you know, that were my um, battery commanders or commanding officers uh, that I just do not feel can be um, recreated uh, within my civilian life. Um, I I would liken it to those that play sort of competitive sport, that sort of team bond uh, that you have when perhaps you win a tournament or you've gone on a journey with people. I feel that each one of my soldiers you know, I went on a journey with them for a part of their life. I attended their marriages, uh, baptisms of their children. You know, my um, first uh, 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 battery commander, is now Brigadier Brigadier Charlie here, is uh, the godfather to my daughter. And um, you just, uh, those bonds are so difficult to make outside of, uh, an environment of conflict where you just have that reliance uh, on each other for each other's safety. And th- that bond and friendship is so strong. And we all meet up at the uh, Royal Artillery Memorial on Hyde Park Corner on um, Remembrance Sunday. And, you know, we attend the service and then we all go to the pub and we catch up. And it's like you haven't even left the army because you're so close and you live through a moment together um, that that is incredibly important. And um, I, for me, that's the bit I miss most about the army. And I would think that is the thing that I take away that I was very, very lucky to have experienced in my life because I don't think um, people would necessarily experience that outside of perhaps their immediate family because I feel a loyalty to my soldiers in the same way I perhaps have to my son or daughter. And, and did you meet people from all sorts of backgrounds through through your time in the army? And do you feel like it might have even been working with people that perhaps you wouldn't have met in a in if you'd started off in the in the walk of life you're in now? Absolutely. I think I think I left the army um, a lot more diverse in my thinking. I met people from all sorts of sections of society. The army recruits um, from the Commonwealth. So I've worked with all, all sorts of members of Commonwealth countries, which was fantastic. And I got exposed to so many different cultures. But even within the UK, I just worked with soldiers from such disparate backgrounds. And some of those soldiers hadn't been um, dealt the best hand of cards uh, by society through, through no fault of their own. And potentially 
um, hadn't made the most, um, again, potentially through no fault of their own, of the educational opportunities um, that are available in the UK or didn't have the stability in their home life to maximise these opportunities. So you'd often have uh, soldiers um, joining with a very low reading age. And as their officer, you would have some responsibility for their education and ensuring that they got their maths and English to a basic standards. But you actually watch these individuals flourish in this environment that, of stability that the military provides. You know, they could, um, they could really prosper and progress. And you would see individuals come in as very un- unconfident sort of 17, 18 year olds. And by, you know, the time they, really, they were, um, uh, you know, junior NCOs with um, significant leadership ability, characteristics, confidence, going somewhere in their lives, earning decent salaries uh, in a happy family environment, having and raising their own children. And you just felt it is brilliant uh, that the army enabled social mobility uh, to that level, that it just um, helps, in some cases, provide structure to, to people that potentially hadn't ever had that structure before. And a regiment is, is like a family environment. Um, the, my regiment, 1st Regiment Royal Horse Artillery, um, was a regiment that the soldiers felt and officers felt incredibly loyal to. And therefore, um, they had a sense of belonging, perhaps that they hadn't ever had before, and a sense of pride that went with that belonging. Then it created that environment for growth uh, within themselves to allow them to become the best they can be. And I always think the army's motto of, you know, um, be the best is absolutely what can be achieved through the regimental system. Because those soldiers had a place to belong. And as soon as you have a place to belong, when you've got people that understand you, have gone through the similar experience of basic training, have gone on operations with you, seen you at your best and seen you at your worst and still accept you and want you to do better, that's when you really grow. And I think that was one of the most fantastic things that the Army does and still does. Uh, that I really appreciated um, for my time in. That's incredible. And that's something that you must feel like as a society we're trying to get to now in terms of equality, giving people equal opportunities. You know, obviously now we're looking at starting it back through the education process, but certainly at that point of you know, leaving school and going into whatever career it is, whether it's the army, whether it's finance, you know, whether it's no matter what it is, um, you know, from what you just said, and the experiences and, and uh, you know, the outlook you've gained from, from that. Have you kind of taken that into your role now and, and what you do now? And, and, you know, is that something you're trying to implement these days in your, in your new career? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very fortunate to work for Barclays, a bank that's doing incredibly well, um, is really getting uh, up there on, on the stage as a, a well-performing investment bank but across all fields corporate and and also wealth as well and um you know our revenue is 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 growing and we are competing with the uh, big american banks and we want to recruit top talent and um top talent can often mean um graduates or very experienced people within the industry 
And I've absolutely had my time hiring some exceptional graduates or people with real experience. But what I've tried to do is remember the situation where the, you know, the young, unconfident 17, 18-year-old comes in and, and what they become. And we tried um, to kind of, Barclays has a great apprenticeship scheme for those uh, leaving school, but also for some of the more junior roles uh, within my team, um, we've looked for school leavers um, to fill fill the, those roles. Because if you take on a school leaver and you properly invest time in them, developing them, building out their career, they will be tremendously loyal to that organization that has taken the time and effort to do that because you have given them their break in their life to have a successful career. And they will pay that back tenfold. And you will get um, such a good return um, from them as an individual. Um, and you will have the reward as well as seeing them grow and develop into the role and be something um, that that benefits the bank from them being the right person and doing a great job. But you actually see them as a person within wider society just become a better person because of their experience uh, within you as a corporate organization. So I think absolutely there is 100% a place for for graduates and those with lots of banking experience. And of course, if you've got a degree in economics or finance, absolutely you're going to be at the forefront of the kind of people Barclays wants to employ. But where there are opportunities to bring someone on who is a school leaver, I would always um, implore doing that because I think you, with the cost of going to university now, it would turn, uh, you don't even have to be from particularly a, 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 a poor background or anything like that. It's just hugely expensive to go to university. So I think people that don't, don't go or consciously decide not to go, it's great if you give those people that opportunity um, to get into the workplace and prove themselves there. And if you make the right selections, it will really pay off for you. So that's something I t- took from the army and just thought, well, you know, we're taking 17-year-olds and then putting them through their GCSEs and get them up to really great standards. And then potentially, um, you know, some of them go on to officer selection or they go um, down the more traditional route of junior NCO, senior NCO, but go on to do such great things. You know, why can't you apply that to banking? And I think we used to do it. Uh, where people would work their way up. Um, but I try to just allow that to happen uh, I can't, as much as I can uh, within the roles uh, that become available. Yeah, that's great. And obviously, yeah, there is a selection process through education. And, um, you know, I think uh, you could probably fill a whole podcast talking about this <laughs> separately. But, you know, it's, yeah, just because people haven't achieved something through the, ed- the education system doesn't mean they can't, you know, thrive in, in their career under various circumstances. You know, there's always a, a second chance. And, um, you know, people do well in different situations and environments. So, uh, I, you know, it's great to hear that, that you know, you and you know, organizations like Barclays are, are giving people that chance. And like you said, it's amazing what happens when you open the door for someone and, uh, and you know, see what they can do. So can I, can I ask you then about your transition from the army um, in, into Barclays? You know, what was, what was it like coming out of, of the army? Um, I guess, yeah, your experience and for others. And um, could you tell me a bit about the Barclays after program, which I know helped you trans- transition into the roles that you've been in since, since leaving? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I ended up at Barclays a month after I left Sierra Leone. Um, and when I told that to the team, they all looked around at me just to sort of check I was outside the quarantine period for Ebola, uh, which fortunately I was. But um, the, 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 um, I think the key thing for me was the, the, the support that the after program gives um, to you veterans. So when you leave the army, um, I did a very short period of service, really, eight and a half years uh, may seem like a long time, but soldiers typically have done 22 plus years leaving and they may not have had a job interview or looked at another career since they were 16, 17 years old. So that is a huge transition for them. And where the after program helps is it not only looks uh, for roles for you at Barclays, but it also does uh, CV workshops, interview workshops, and puts at the disposal of the veteran uh, the brilliance of uh, Barclays um, HR and their sort of um, recruitment experience to say, well, look, this is what people are looking for. This is kind of what you do in the army. And this is what, you know, that relates to in, in, in corporate life and, and how you should potentially describe that. And they really tailor their CV workshops to try and get the best uh, at, from the veteran CV. And, and I often find veterans don't do a very good job of selling themselves. In the army, you can see they've got incredible capabilities because they're performing them. But when you try to get them to actually sell themselves, that's not something they're good at. So Barclays really helps on that front. And it helps, um, it does uh, internships where you can work um, for the bank for a, a period of three months um, to, to or, or it may, I think it's six to three, six weeks to three months. And that can help you um, to sort of build up your work experience, which either helps you to apply somewhere else or hopefully leads to you getting an internal role. But more than that, and where I think it was most useful to me is it's connected me with a veteran network. And the after program works with other banks that also have military programs and all the major uh, banks do, which is great. And what it enabled me to do is occasionally on days where you perhaps don't think you're being under understood or you can't quite get your message across is you can bounce ideas off your veteran network and understand perhaps why that's not quite landing uh, in the right way in, in the corporate world and how you need to change uh, and evolve to to get uh, get it right in that corporate environment but also from a mental health perspective which I think is hugely important if you are troubled by something that's happened in in your service or your you know, you've started thinking about Afghanistan a lot and can't quite understand why. Um, nothing beats going to talk to someone who works at the same bank as you that you've got shared experiences with. And it doesn't matter if you didn't actually serve or come across each other in your service. You've got that, that network of friends that have that common background that help can help support you through your transition. And I think that's really, really important. Um, and particularly from a sort of veteran suicide perspective, I think having that community around you through things like the after program just makes an absolute difference. The other thing the after program does that I think is pretty special is it helps um, serving personnel. So one shouldn't forget that someone is still making the sacrifice. Say so I did my eight and a half years, I've gone into the corporate world. But I'm hugely grateful for uh, servicemen and women who are continuing to to carry on their service to keep this country safe. And Barclays offers additional help 
uh, to these people in terms of um, the banking services they have. And, you know, this is not a sort of shameless uh, sell because I'm sure, you know, service personnel need bank accounts and they would probably go to one of the big UK banks of which Barclays is one. But what Barclays is trying to do here is actually just recognise that these uh, people are giving more to their country and that they should have some additional help around that to try and support them with their, their banking needs. So I think it's great that they've got bespoke packages for service personnel. And the final thing that the after program does, which I think is superb, is um, the support to the reservist. So Barclays has a huge citizenship agenda, which is absolutely superb. But I think it really recognises um, that the reservist is twice the citizen. Because actually, not only do uh, Army Reservists work at Barclays and do fantastic work there, they're also giving up their weekends and evenings to go and serve their country in a military capacity. And if we look at COVID, um, actually, you can see vast numbers of reservists being called up because actually the regular army is concentrated around areas within the country, normally where there's big training areas in order to um, say, you know, Salisbury Plain being one of them where you can exercise armoured vehicles. You've got a large amount of the army stationed there. So actually, when you have something like COVID, to, to be able to call on your reserves, you are more in touch with the local community and can respond quickly, I think it's fantastic. And Barclays is supporting employees that are currently um, mobilised to support that COVID effort. And I think that's great um, as a bank that we were able to do that, because even though we are focusing on our client base and supporting our clients through real struggles and, and tough times and, and, and ultimately the country, we're also able to give that opportunity for employees to be reservists and to support their country through mobilizations, whether that be um, COVID or mobilization to Iraq, Afghanistan, or where the army happens to be serving at that time. So I think there is some really good streams there that the after program absolutely delivers on. Um, and I think it is an exceptionally well thought through program. Um, and I'm very pleased to be part of it at, at Barclays Bank. Yeah, that's great. And, and Dan, I, I know that's so genuine. Uh, and, you know, for anyone listening, um, you know, that's really kind of moved by that story. I, I, I say I know it is genuine. And I, yeah, there's no press officer here with a, um, you know, saying, Dan, get the measure across. You know, I, I, that seems to be coming from a, from, from a totally real place. And what you've, you know, just through this journey you've taken us on, yeah, the stories and there are some amazing experiences and times when you're in the military, but obviously coming out is is a whole other challenge, you know, even for people that have been been at war in places halfway across the world, just coming back and, and transitioning back into everyday life is is so important. And like you say, uh, yeah, mental health and is, is such an important topic, um, not just right now, but always has been, but I just feel it's coming to the fore a bit more now. So for, for an organisation to acknowledge that and do something about it is is pretty amazing. You know, it's there's there's a, a lot of things in this world, I guess, that that big organisations, yeah, you know, they in some ways they have the responsibility to to help with and do something about. But it's good that they're taking the initiative to do that um, and and to care for people, especially coming out of the uh, the military. So um, yeah, um, it's it's nice to give a shout out to to the company, and like I say, in a very genuine way. Yeah, so thanks for that. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, I listened to that, I just got totally, totally carried away and uh, um, engrossed in what you were saying there. <laughs> so what's my next question? I, I was going to ask, um, you know, what, 
what do you feel like the the most transferable skills were from for you going from the military to into finance see in terms of transferable skills um i think the key one is leadership i always felt that we really invested in that individual sort of development points their reporting um trying to find non money ways of motivating them as an individual to grow um their education and pushing them forward so that they felt that every year there was a new challenge and in some way they were getting developed. And I think it's that leadership and that people focus that potentially a a veteran brings to a bank that isn't necessarily organically there. Please don't get me wrong. There are fantastic leaders that have come through the industry. And certainly at the top of my bank, there are some hugely inspiring and fantastic leaders at the moment that are really pushing the bank in a great direction. And as I said earlier, competing with those uh, sort of major US banks in the space that Barclays wants to be in. But at a sort of middle management uh, level, it's it's that investment in people, which I think has really helped uh, a veteran to make a difference and show his worth, to, his or her worth to the organisation. I think from a um, a, a a cool and calm head is probably the second thing um, that that we bring in. And I, I always uh, remember when I initially got the job at Barclays and um, a, a guy called Bruce Perry was my sort of boss's boss at the time, fantastic, and gave me, you know, really gave me the opportunity to get in. And Bruce said to me, Dan, I understand, you know, a bit about your background and military and you know you'll you'll be able to cope with pressure and have a cool and calm head i think sometimes what you've got to remember is although it can be pressurized situations in a bank no one has actually died and i said you know what bruce i can really relate to that i understand you know i've been to afghanistan in in all all sorts of situations i i get it you know i've just got to keep calm and remember those he says sort of um but sometimes if you could pretend they have died and just get the problem sorted because it's a major issue. <laughs> and I just want to say, okay, I, I, I do get, get where you're get, coming from. You know, there is like real urgency in what you have to do deal with banks. And that pressure can be overwhelming because the bank is absolutely trying to do its best by its client base and keeping with the market volatility that we had earlier in the year. It was an exceptional time and, and Barclays did very well. But I feel, um, particularly in my role with the custody network and partnering with our custodian banks, that actually my ability to stay cool and calm under pressure, which was born out of my time in Afghanistan, and also to break down a problem. So no matter how bad a situation is, is just to take it apart, understand what you can influence and what you can't, understand whether you need to escalate it and get help on the bits you can't influence, and what you can immediately to do to bring that problem back into your control, and that that is a key key um, key factor that I think a military veteran will bring is that ability to stay calm and approach the problem, no matter how daunting it may appear. And the final piece uh, that I think a veteran brings in terms of transferable skills is communication. So in the army, we're taught to over communicate. So like you know, communicate what position you're on the ground, what enemy threats you face, whether you feel the situation is changing, uh, what are the dynamics of the town or village or bazaar that you're going through feel like, does something feel odd? 
um, do you feel like you're about to come into contact? Why are there no people on the streets? And just keep reporting up. And then people in headquarters and stuff can tee up resources, such as attack helicopters or artillery fire, et cetera, to, to help you if you build the situation and picture. And I feel um, that is something you can bring to a bank where you over-communicate with clients, which reassures the clients that you're on top of what you're doing and they, they know what's going on. So just ensure that your middle offices, your client service teams are fully informed if there's a problem from the moment that problem happens. Now, fortunately, I work for a very good bank and we have very few problems. So that's not an issue all the time. But on the rare occasions it is, I do feel that that over-communication that veterans bring to the party um, is incredibly useful because then your client base has the confidence in you that you're on top of issues as they happen. Dan, I think you might have some uh, former colleagues from the, the military just copying and pasting those answers for their uh, next interview. That's <laughs> <laughs> very kind, John. <laughs> well, I'm going I'm to finish up, Dan, by um, asking you some questions that we're asking every guest on this series, if that's okay. Sure. The first one is, who from the financial services or security services industry, maybe more specifically, has inspired you? Well, uh, see, that, that is it. That is, that's a very tough question. And I guess... I've, I've probably got an internal and an external answer to it. So firstly, I guess from an internal perspective, it would be remiss of me not to, um, I guess, you know, look to sort of Sharon Hunt and Bruce Perry, who ultimately gave me the opportunity, mentored me and set me on the right path for success within Barclays. And so I, I guess at a middle um, middle to upper management level, they were hugely inspirational. As now I've kind of landed myself and I look, there are, I guess, two people, uh, key, key people within the business that I really look to who I think are exceptional. One is um, Mark, uh, Mark Newton, who runs uh, Prime Breakridge within the Amir uh, region. And he has an attitude towards client service that is just exceptional. And he just always drives for the very best for the client um, you know, if we can, if a client wants a bespoke solution, can we achieve it? Is it scalable? Can we offer it to other clients? And he is really driving an agenda on client service in Barclays that I've seen like no other. So, and the second person is Andy Diplock. Um, Andy Diplock works in fixed income financing, and he's an, an exceptional person. He's got a huge amount of industry knowledge, but will really take you on the journey. Uh, with him to make the client experience better and to really help you develop um, your understanding of the market space and what Barclays clients uh, want and how we can get that competitive edge. And I really love uh, sort of working with those kind of people that are trying to make the bank have a competitive edge, have a real client focus and make us a the go-to bank on the market. So I love that um, drive. In terms of in the wider industry and outside the bank, there are so many um, inspirational uh, people out there that I've seen um, sort of great product offerings with. I started with working um, uh, my career working with the ICSDs. So I've had loads of great experiences with Phil Brown and his team and uh, Bernard Ferrand uh, and his team from um, uh, uh, the Euroclear side as opposed to the Clearstream I just mentioned. Um, and also... Uh, you know, have had a great experience with the uh, Citibank uh, relationship managers who have really drawn and broadened my knowledge. And I, I guess I have to be hugely grateful to a number of people, but I, I don't really believe on sitting on the fence. 
and see if I had to pick someone within the industry that I have really looked up to that was outside of my bank, it would probably be Margaret Harwood Jones. And the reason for that is I met um, Margaret quite a few years ago now um, at, at, at one of your dinners, and I'd had a number of uh, phone conversations and, and been on video links with her beforehand. And I always remember um, I was, Barclays was doing some business out in South Africa with Standard Chartered Bank at the time. Um, and she dialed in from Singapore to join this call, which must have been the middle of the night uh, over there because she cared so much uh, about ensuring it was right for Barclays and it was the right client fit. And I guess I've seen someone in Margaret that is so passionate and caring uh, about her, her industry, the bank she works for, and ensuring uh, that they are the best in the market and provide exceptional service. But she's also incredibly caring and developmental of her team. And that passes down to uh, Maddie Senior and Asher and the people that I deal with uh, in the UK. And I just think um, the mindset and the approach that Margaret takes towards the industry with very much a client service lens on it, but a real can-do and professional approach um, is one that I sort of recognize uh, from the army. And I wouldn't go so far as to perhaps say Margaret would have done very well in the army and she may well have done. Um, but I also, I just think that her professionalism and her attitude to client service is second to none. Great. Thanks, Dan. And yeah, some, some uh, wonderful people there you, you've mentioned and uh, familiar names to our audience. Um, and Margaret was someone we gave the Lifetime Achievement Award to a couple of years ago on top of various other honours. I think we've, we've handed to a global custodian. So I think um, uh, we would also agree and, and so would many others in the industry. So the next question is, where has inspiration from outside of your professional life come from? See, outside of my professional life, um, I guess I have to look to my mother and father, really, which seems like a, a strange thing to say. But um, my mother and father, you know, you can always pick someone iconic. But I look at my parents who really worked hard for us to have the right educational opportunities and neither of which had, had gone past sort of A-level education. And they wanted us to perhaps have a better set than, than they did. And so they really um, pushed us in a very caring and loving way. It's because I've got two brothers um, to, to move forward and better ourselves. And always taught us to try hard at everything we did and, and find our niche. And I'm fairly sure that I wouldn't have achieved any of the things uh, that I have today without their love, uh, care and support. But I guess in addition to that, the reason I look up to them is they were incredibly hardworking and they made their way and overcame many obstacles as they uh, were going through their careers to get to quite senior positions and really um, uh, to, you know, show us that with hard work, one really can achieve and better themselves and and provide for their children in a in a in a good way so i always feel i should acknowledge that because i do look at my mother and father as role models and i do um want to sort of emulate what they were able to achieve because i hugely admire it in terms of who do i look out outside the organization um or or, or outside of my professional life i'm 
very keen on my history and I do, uh, I guess it's all military people are, I do sort of look at Churchill as um, obviously, you know, not alive anymore, but I do look at Churchill as someone who I found particularly inspirational, particularly um, in, in, in his leadership during World War Two, and um, and in this uh, and the support and the leadership he gave the country at such a difficult time, and I think it's exceptional that he put everything on the line for his country, um, and it's very difficult to um, emulate someone as as great as that who lived through very difficult circumstances, which I hope would never repeat it. But if you can just take a little bit about what what he did, and his um, selflessness in 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 leading the country, and try to emulate that yourself, I think you would you would be a very good um, citizen of the UK. And Dan, finally, what's the biggest life lesson you've learned that you would like to pass on to others? So I think I think for me is always um, believe in your people and believe in 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 the the good people can do if if they're in the right environment with the right support and that, i think that really came up in afghanistan um where you know with the right training um the soldiers performed exceptionally well and we're talking about as i said before in some cases very people from very low educated backgrounds through no fault of their own performing to an exceptional standard so i think if you give your people the right building blocks they can do exceptional things and you the value of you as the, the unit as a whole is much bigger than just one person so so for me my biggest takeaway in life is believe in your people and work with them to achieve the very best well look i mean this is this has been an amazing conversation i think whether people are interested in the military or just in hearing from fascinating people with incredible stories and inspiring insights it's, it really has been a great conversation dan and yeah, I knew we'd be talking about your experiences in the army, but I feel like what you've delivered goes beyond that in terms of making the world a better place, diversity, equality, it's all about mental health. So, so many important things for everyone to hear about and, and bear in mind at this point in time. So just, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and uh, thanks again for sharing your story. Thank you very much for having me, John. I've, I've really enjoyed it and I hope it's all come across well. Absolutely. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks for listening today. And thanks again to our sponsors, SmartStream, who have supported us through this series, along with their clients. And even as I've discovered myself, frontline workers through donations they've made during this period. If you like what you've heard today, make sure you subscribe and keep an eye out each week for new episodes or listen in on globalcustodian.com. Thanks again.